Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done, and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment, before the monsters came, humanoids from the deep dive. Welcome to the podcast Humanoids of the Deep Dive, where we dig deep into the meanings and context of your favorite monsters and monster movies. Each episode, we will see guests and myself give our take on an important movie, monster, and or film, and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore. Today's episode, we will be kicking off our Pride celebration uh, by chatting our favorite queer horror films and filmmakers. And uh, it's a very, very special episode. It's, it's just us running the show, running the ship. Uh, fans of the show can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcast, and literally anywhere you can find a podcast, pretty much. Uh, also follow us on Twitter at HFTDeepDive. I'm your host, Jeff Hewing. I'm an entertainment contributor for Forbes, Looper, and all sorts of other places. And I've, I've uh, coded two books on pop culture and philosophy focused on monsters and a bunch of chapters. Basically, if it's monsters, I am obsessed with it. And uh, I've probably done something about it. Uh, so today, um, it's our, our just literally our entire cast of co-hosts are here for you for this episode because it's, it's very special to our hearts. And it kicks off our Pride celebration this month. Um, and I'm going to let these fine humanoids introduce themselves today. Uh, Mike, would you like to go first? Because you're first on the queue. Sure. Uh, my name is Michael Vaughn. Um, I wrote a book called um, The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema. I am very pumped to talk about queer horror filmmakers and movies. Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, Luna? Yeah, uh, I'm Luna Minwi. I am basically just a horror nerd. And I also have another podcast, The Gotham Sloth. And I am pandemi and ready to party. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> I felt like that needed like a raucous party cheer, but I just didn't want to be too loud. We need like a soundboard. We do need some sound effects. I will work on that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Luna. I appreciate it. Um, Andrew, if you'd be so kind. Hi, yeah. I'm Andrew Fleming Dunn, sometime Twitch streamer, general guy from internet. Um, yeah, I'm just really excited to, uh, to do this. This is my first real pride, so I'm ready to rock on. And also I'm excited. This is my first episode with, uh, Luna and Andre. So yeah, yeah. I just realized that. Yeah. So <laughs> that's the problem when you have like so many people that are awesome that like permutations, unless you can just get everyone shoved into a digital room. It's true. It's true. So <laughs> I I'm feel excited like... to uh, but... hang out with you all today. Finally. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely to have you and you all here. And last, certainly not least, uh, Andre. Hey everyone, uh, I'm Andre. I am probably the straightest person here, but uh, <laughs> definitely consider myself an ally. Um, my wife identifies as pan and gender fluid. So um, we've been celebrating Pride ever since she came out. And um, yeah, never looked back since then. I just exist on the internet. So Twitter and letterboxd are my two homes away from homes awesome uh hey th thank you and thank you for sharing that i didn't know that that's amazing andre yeah 
Absolutely. It was so interesting because I, I uh, had come out to, to friends and family and and my my partner who I, I won't name, but um, last year, well, I came out to them before and then last year I came out publicly to folks and my partner, she was uh, more excited than anybody, I think, because I was just <laughs> like, because uh, I came out to everybody that was relevant in my life. Right. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, I don't really, my journal philosophy is like, well, I don't owe anybody anything. <laughs> and then, so I was just like, I feel like it would be a good thing to do and a good time to do it. And she was like, yeah, absolutely. You should definitely do that. I'm like, oh, all right. It's a lovely feeling to have like the support of your, your, your family and your friends. Hell and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. I, and, I feel like I re- recall coming out fairly early. I was like about 15 or 16. And it was oh, definitely wow. like one of those um, definitely go for broke. And I just didn't feel like being unauthentic. Um, Hell yeah. Yeah, I feel that. I was just like, you know what? It's it's hard enough for so many folks. So if I can help like one person feel like a little bit braver, then it's super worth it. And and all I ever received for it was niceness. So yeah. I feel very blessed in that regard. It's just, uh, this is my first like, I guess on the internet anyway, you know, I just, it's always just been kind of, yeah. Yeah. I just am. So mm-hmm. it's like, uh, it's just, it's, it's weird to do it in like a, a bigger spectrum, you know, like, cause it's always yeah, I get just kind of been, and I'm excited. I have a question for y'all. Have you all ever been to, uh, any pride parades or anything like that? Oh yeah, I have. No. Uh, I have back in when I not in LA. I don't just LA is so freaking big. I don't go to downtown LA for big events much, just because it will take forever and take forever to get out. But when I lived in Chicago, I went. Nice. Um, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've been to one um, a few years ago, but that was before my wife had come out. So it was uh, mm-hmm. my stepmom was going. So we were we went over to the Pride celebration in Seattle. And Seattle is such a large city so that like they have Mm -hmm. multiple pride celebrations and like parades and marches everywhere. But specifically the uh, Capitol Hill, Seattle uh, parade on Broadway. I don't remember what year it was, but it was many years ago. It was when I used to live in that neighborhood, but we haven't been to one since. And uh, I don't know when we would be able to go next, but the next one, when it's safe, we will definitely go. Absolutely. Uh, Well, hey, you know, uh, thank you all for for sharing your respective stories. And um, for the folks at home, uh, if you're uh, LGBTQ, we uh, fucking love you. Hell yeah. yeah. And and say fucking because this is our show. (laughs) (laughs) um, You are part of our monster family. And with that, uh, let's let's kind of move on. So so today being a special episode, we uh, are going to first kind of start out by talking our favorite queer filmmakers. Uh, we've each chosen one, but it, as usual, it's going to kind of go wherever it goes. And since you were the first to put your thoughts and expressions down, Luna, would you like to start us out? <laughs> I was like, ah, this is going to bite me in the ass. <laughs> 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 yeah, sure. I'm, you can I'm, say no. No, no, no. I, I'm here for it. Okay. <laughs> so um, my... No, you said no. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I have anxiety, guys. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, not really. I am. I am anxiety incarnate. Um, so <laughs> my my selection for um, filmmaker is Luca Guadagnino. Guadag- 
Nino. I knew I was going to butcher it. Um, mm-hmm. And he's an Italian filmmaker known for Call Me By Your Name from 2017 and the remake of Dario Argento's Suspiria that came out in 2018, among many others. And it is worth noting that Suspiria stars Tilda Swinton, who is simply a treasure. She um, really is. She's Agreed. wonderful. Should yeah, be Pennywise. Absolutely. <gasps> yes. Yeah. <laughs> my my uh, just hypothetical side note is I I'm pretty sure that she's from the same extraterrestrial species that Bowie is. Yes. Yes. And 100%. I think they should yeah, just invade already. <laughs> Ooh, Absolutely. I'd like that. Hey, please like, alien overlords. Take me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I will go to whatever that planet is. <laughs> and all subtext meant in that statement. Um <laughs> exactly. Thank you. There was subtext. <laughs> So, uh, Guadagnino is openly gay. His father was Italian from Sicily, and his mother was Algerian. He grew up in Ethiopia, but left in 1977 due to the Ethiopian Civil War. He was about six or seven when that happened. Uh, I, I clearly do not know him personally. He is God, I am peon. But I think it is safe to assume that he likely needed to grow up a a lot faster than other children, which is common for children in marginalized populations worldwide. Guadagnino Mm -hmm. began his interest in filmmaking at age nine, if that gives you any um, context for when in his life he started wanting to tell stories through film, which I think is pretty powerful. Um, There's Mm -hmm. a series on HBO right now called We Are Who We Are, which I'm excited to watch, uh, and I haven't yet, but he... I watched an interview and he was talking about his love of describing interesting people and letting people lead the camera. And you can certainly see this in his other films. In my experience with his films, I feel this like genuine sense of patience that I didn't walk into the theater with, though I know that may not be the case for everyone. I know a lot of people are like, ah, it's so slow. And I'm like, ah, it's perfect. His films seem to force you to sit down with yourself so that you can accept being with yourself then forget yourself entirely so that you can see others more clearly. If that makes mm-hmm. any sense at all. It made sense to me. Yeah, I like it. That's 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 a lovely sentiment. I really love his adaptation of Suspiria. Yes. By the way. Yeah, me too. I love it. It's the only thing yeah. I've seen of his. Mm-hmm. Like I, I love that he went in his own direction with it. He it's it's more in the spirit of than a direct remake it's visually stunning it's so i know what you mean about the pacing luna yeah Uh, it's very thoughtful it really is it's it's just stunning to behold not to be too hyperbolic but for real Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um and so yeah I, i mean in general like his films are immersive and expansive yet unbearably deep at times and in my opinion like guadagnino's storytelling is for everyone, but not necessarily at the same time, if that makes any sense. So, like, you need him to take you out to the reef to see the seafloor drop out from under you and then bring you safely back to the warm tidal waters. But, like, it's just whenever you're ready. Like, there's no forcing it. Just mm-hmm. just enjoy it when, you, when you're ready. But, yeah, I think that he is a remarkable filmmaker. And if you haven't watched his films, you totally should. It's a great endorsement. I couldn't agree more. You said about his, like, style, because I've only ever gone off Suspiria. Uh, it's the only film of his I've seen. But I, it, it, that movie was like a slap in the face. I thought it was so brilliant. But I thought one of the weirdest criticisms I heard were people were like, it isn't a stylish movie as 
like like the first one, I'm like, it's stylish as all hell, just in a completely mm-hmm. different totally. way. And it's just, and I thought that was maybe the best subversion of the material he did was to take the garishness away, mm-hmm. but to give you like, let's say through editing, through music, just the dance. I mean, yeah, yeah, those dance sequences were great. Oh man, they destroy people <laughs> through dance magic. Yeah. That's innovative. That's that is one. literally all I want to do in my life. Exactly, <laughs> it's perfect. No, and I also love that it ends because it takes um, like I don't, I don't. So I don't tend to like witchcraft movies personally because they often reify basically like Christian anti witch uh, misogynist dogma. You should watch the witch movies I watch. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're watching. Well, I like the ones that decenter that narrative and either give the witches actual independent power for real, right? Not just like, they're witches, they do spells and shit, and then they're bad guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but that actually give them some authentic level of power. I like that. Or um, ones that decenter the narrative in different ways. And I love that this one ends with basically apocalyptic witch TV <laughs> spoilers. Yeah, yeah. It's fucking best. It is amazing. And one thing I will say, like, I didn't want to, like, nerd out on Suspiria specifically. Maybe that'll be another episode um, down the road because mm-hmm. I wanted to highlight his his work. Um, but in the, in the remake, the visceral choreography with articulation and percussion, it, like, evokes this highly like undeniable sexual animalistic power that has no gender it is just raw Mm -hmm. power and it will fucking destroy you and break all your bones (laughs) (laughs) so i love it oh my god that's so literal (laughs) (laughs) i love it though my still like my one regret as as a film critic is that i never got my hands on one of those like promotional hooks that they gave out yeah that would have been and i will i will find one i will get my hands on that it's such a, an iconic and horrifying object yes i love that film it's a wonderful choice so next uh andrew would you like to talk about your favorite filmmaker uh sure actually this one's it feels a little obvious but he's he's so damn important to me is uh clive barker i discovered him early i mean like i i was born in 84 and i i think i saw hellbound hellraiser 2 which he produced as a sequel to mm-hmm. one of his films, but that unleashed something in me. And then I, my brother started giving me the books of blood that he would check out from the library in secret. And, and then Hellraiser is, I, I think, for any horror fan of any age, no matter what, it's such a singular work of visual genius. And mm-hmm. the man is he's one of those guys that just does everything. He's a playwright, a director, he's a painter, he's a writer. And it's all of it is just beautiful and grotesque and, and mystifying and, and just how playful he can be as a, as a filmmaker. And, and one of the things that really always struck me with him in particular in something like uh, the film, I really want to highlight is Lord of illusions, his third and final film is how he subverts male gaze because as a queer mm. man, he, is sexually attracted to to men but he admires the human form and the shapes we make and the you watch hellraiser and the way he does this is not just through a your your stereotypical male gaze what he does is he cements it through the character uh in the first hellraiser julia is remembering a sexual liaison she had with a man named frank the camera's focus is on frank as it should be because it's her remembrance and i love that he allows 
the male form to exist. He's he's not afraid of male nudity. He's not afraid of female nudity. And and he does this wonderful thing where it's it's not just these beautiful Adonises and perfect bodies. He expresses everyone. So you have the skinny, the bigger. You have tall, short. You have people who aren't traditionally considered, you know, Calvin Klein beautiful. You have this wonderful spectrum. And, and I, I read this wonderful quote um, from him that I think sums up his work. And, and what it really means to me is that he doesn't make specifically queer films, but he allows queerness to exist in it because queerness exists in the world. And his idea is to normalize it. And I, this quote to me just, it stood out as, uh, I want as many people as possible to know these imaginings come from a gay man who's happy to be gay. One who's making work which will be read by straight readers and enjoyed by straight readers. I add nothing special for gays in my fiction, but they are part of the world I create, and constructively so. And I, I feel like a lot of times people will highlight, and queer characters will be main characters, they'll be side characters, they'll just be part of the fabrics of his world because they are the fabric of our world. You know, we are everywhere like put out there enough you know he doesn't specialize anyone because we are all special we are all capable of of magic Mm -hmm. and particularly in lord of illusions um just the constant harry damore shirtless the the constant attention to both male and female form during the grand illusion scene and 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 i just love that barker brings you know he tends to bring kinky sex out and you know, I mean, at Hellraiser. What, what did he? What did he originally title? Sado Masochist. Uh, yeah, beyond, from beyond like, the grave. The grave <laughs> <laughs> and, but I, I love that he takes these things that have been hidden in the shadows, and he just he puts them in the spotlight. And then he is such an important part of normalizing. I think for a lot of us, like I, when he came out to me, anyway. You know, he I think had been openly. Uh, out, but it was on like an episode of Politically Incorrect, if anybody remembers it. And I just remember being like, fuck yeah. You know, because how many people, because horror and, and, you know, media at that time, this was in the early 90s, it's so male driven and that idea of masculinity and and, then horrors, you know, there's stereotypes Mm -hmm. within and and from the fandom towards even the films they like and the creators that they have. And then you have the man who created Pinhead, the man who created Candyman coming out and being like, look at me, it's gay. I I read an interview where he was just like, people were like, did you catch any flack for it? And he's like, no, no, like no one cared. And that's what I, I love about a lot of the horror community is that nobody batted an eye. It was just like, okay. And, and mm-hmm. I think he allows he allowed a lot of that normalizing at a time where it wasn't. And his films highlight that in very subtle ways. I mean, Nightbreed is a celebration of queerness and identity. Oh yeah, and, and of being the, the you know yeah. the outsider. You know, like you know, like even if you feel like you're on the outs of mainstream society, you yes. are in the ins. And- once we you find your Yokers, tribe, we wanted to be in Midian partying with like you know the other people like us like that's and he allows like just this it's okay to look at somebody who you know it's okay to let the other part of your audience get to look at somebody you know it's okay to allow this it's it's normal for women and gay men to want to look at something it's normal for you know 
whatever. And, and he allows this completely by showing you all of it. And it's in his fiction because like Barker gives you like an expansive mm-hmm. universe to just explore because he deals, especially I think for somebody like me, pansexuality deals like a lot in his fiction and people who are just kind of like, mm-hmm. I'm here for the ride and I'm, I'm here because beings of all sorts are lovely and, and deserving of, you know, of, of love and whatever. Like it's, it, it's there and it's like, you read a magica and it's, that's pretty much what a magica is. And it, it's wonderful. And you may know his name, but I don't think people really know his work as well as they think they do. And I highly, highly recommend you. If you only know Hellraiser, if you only know Candyman, go to the Lord of Illusions, go to the Books of Blood, go to the Damnation Game, a Magicka. Uh, Sacrament is beautiful um, about a man dying of AIDS who goes on an astral projection. Mm-hmm. He's, he's so much more, and I think we deserved so much more than we got. Once again, he was swallowed up by the studio system who just didn't understand what he was doing. He, he almost felt like 20, 30 years too early. But we needed him then. Absolutely. And like one of my partner's favorite books is The Thief of Always. And I just <sighs> read it the other day and like through this lens of this queer writer, it is such a powerful book for kids. Yep. He hides it. He doesn't even hide it. No. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of the glory of it. And but his his words and imagery are so beautiful, and they allow because people I think focus on the ugliness a lot in his work, which you know, which is why he's often mislabeled as a horror author. He's a dark fantasy author, really. Oh, totally. But you know what's interesting too, though? Like I would say that to someone that doesn't understand it, it's ugly. But yes. in the world that he's creating. It's decentering the typical standards, absolutely, and ugliness is beautiful relative to the world he creates. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a, it's just a celebration of just otherness in its entirety, and he, and he it, it's hard because people I think really just know Hellraiser, and even Nightbreed has really only been gaining steam the past four or five, six years, maybe since we did our episode, really, right? Yeah, we blew the the lid open. On <laughs> But, Which, by the way, folks at home, check out our Nightbreed episode. It's uh, awesome. We had such a good time. But It's really good, even though I'm not on it. It's true. We missed you, Luke. I'm just kidding. Same. We're going to digitally put you in. <laughs> like, a, like, an Anakin, like a Hayden Christensen oh, at the end of uh, Jedi. <laughs> and then we'll God. only release like the Luna Cut, you know, where it's, <laughs> it's oh, like no. the ones with, with Han shooting, you know, second. You know? Oh, no. It's the only version out there. Oh. Never mind, I take it back. You just keep putting digital rocks in front of pictures of Luna. (laughs) Gotta make sure. Why does this episode have blaster sounds in it? That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) Every, I think all our episodes should have blaster sounds. Shot first. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Always. Perfect. No, I, I I love it. It's such, it's such a good choice. I love that. Um, I mean, I love. I'm gonna wax poetic about Barker in uh, a few hot minutes, but uh, such a great choice. Lord of Illusions is also a, a lovely marriage yes. of two of my favorite genres. I was about to say because it's a noir horror film, <laughs> and it does. And those are 
one like my two personal favorite genres and it, it does them both very well too it's kind of that fun elmore leonard noir too that, that kind of sunbaked mm-hmm. orange noir and it takes both sides of it very seriously and it works mm-hmm. like the horror works the the kind of noirish mystery the saxophone on the soundtrack it all works. yeah and they're really only like a small handful because like despite the fact okay so this is a, a side folks at home, so uh, either go get pop- popcorn or prepare to be riveted. It's interesting because noir films by necessity are so dark. Like the world is full of corruption. The world is full of like heroes that are really anti-heroes who are just less shitty than the bad guy. It's such a disillusioned worldview. And the themes are always so dark. Like yes. look at in Chinatown, yes. right? Uh, what the the bad guy's ultimate badness is very terrible, and that's not even talking about the director. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I went there. This is a complicated show. Um, but then it's so interesting to me that they're very rarely combined. Yes, because it's such a fertile combination potentially. And Lord of Illusions nails the combination. And it's one of the few to do that. Like, I just watched Angel Heart this morning. So it's another good. one of the few. Yes. Ooh, that's good, too. Yeah. But there's so few, and Lord of Illusions just nails the tone. I love, uh, I even love in Lord of Illusions that, and what's fun with Barker, too, is adapting his own short story. It's in book six of the Books of Blood. You can find it separately, usually under uh, Cabal. It's usually packaged with the story mm-hmm. that inspired Nightbreed. Um, and uh, what I love is that it starts out with the cult goes into we introduce harry damore who is the main character who shows up in a lot of these books so what's kind of fun with lord of illusions when you watch it harry damore being in it means that hellraiser is in the same world and that uh the books of the art are happening at the same time as well because he's kind of like this bridge between um all of uh barker's work and what's kind of fun is that he's he doesn't get the case that the movie's about he gets like a guy who's just insurance fraud case who just happens to cross paths and then harry gets kind of like sidetracked and i love that harry's a guy who doesn't look for it it finds him mm-hmm. and it's yeah like i just i just yeah. love its connection to the wider like noir mm-hmm. tradition yes because it's the callback to like the philip mar he's like a supernatural philip marlowe who's <laughs> in these multitude of stories or the fact that it's a common trope to have like insurance fraud be the initial thing where they're like, Oh, this is just like, we're looking at the paperwork. The paperwork doesn't match. And then like, Oh my God, it's so much worse than your fucking paperwork. Yeah, but it, it, it's like the insurance fraud is just the thing that gets it. Like the guy, the, the insurance fraud guy just disappears. He just happened to be going to a place where this thing happened. And it's, it's just, I love that. It just, this movie easily could have just been a noir film where an insurance fraud case becomes about the water department you know and then Mm -hmm. but no it becomes about a man who by his own admission wanted to become a god and then changed his mind Mm -hmm. it's the one film that people kind of almost forget about it i feel it's like you get hellraiser nightbreed he wrote Candyman, the story and no one ever says lord of illusions so i'm saying Mm -hmm. it now and i'm saying (laughs) it proud go fucking watch lord of illusions very much appreciate it do it right now Uh, well after the episode right now (laughs) Andre, would you like to go next? So the filmmaker I, I picked uh, is Don Mancini. Uh, he's the the writer and director of one of his own films, uh, Child's Play. Don Mancini is uh, a very uh, publicly out uh, gay man. And I believe the first 
Child's Play, I believe Tom Holland directed that one. His his themes that go throughout Child's Play, while not at the time when I was watching them, uh, I actually binge watched all of the like Child's Play movies over the course <laughs> of like say about a weekend or two with my wife. We just couldn't get enough of them. Awesome. Uh, didn't realize at the time that that he was gay. And something sort of clicked by the time we started watching uh, Bride of Chucky. And then uh, then we watched Seed of Chucky right after that. And I was like, okay, there's something here. I, I think uh, just looking at the series as a whole, uh, you can't really describe the Child's Play series without the representation of queerness. There's uh, even just going back to the very first scene where we do see Brad Dourif as Brad Dourif uh, when he transfers his soul into the Chucky doll where he doesn't have a choice, but he goes into uh, the body of something that he didn't have any choice in being in. And I think that's a, an underlying theme that hasn't really been uh, explored fully, at least not until Seed of Chucky, but even then feel like Mancini's representation of queer, non-binary, and even trans characters like have a very respectful representation and treating those characters as well human beings even though uh they are dolls but they're still like they're like <laughs> you know um pseudo humans i i guess i would yeah because like the, their souls are human yeah of course like uh charles lee ray definitely um jennifer tilly's character uh in bride definitely as well but then uh, I, I mean, we're going to talk about Seed of Chucky anyway. So Glenn or Glenda, I think, is what <laughs> is what they went with for the character, uh, which is also another reference to uh, the Ed Wood Glenn or Glenda, which was mm-hmm. actually semi-biographical. And um, the, the whole series just like they they include these uh, these queer characters and they consistently make them just part of the tapestry of people that exist and live normally when the, within this world, except with, you know, maybe the exception of there's not a killer doll trying to inhabit your body. Um, that you know of. Yeah. That I know of. I mean, it's a big world. He could be there, but yeah. It, and it's like the, the representation is always very positive and it, it looks like Mancini who's been writing all of these movies himself. Um, he's really, he's paying attention and he's trying to give uh queer people a positive representation and i think not a lot of people are truly noticing that as of yet yeah i I haven't seen that really come up that much but now that you're talking about Mm -hmm. it i can totally see that and i think that that needs to be something that we talk about more yeah he's i mean he's also going on he he did a lot with uh hannibal um yeah that's right Uh, he did some writing for that he did and that probably is one of the greatest I don't know how you would classify their relationship, but it's a show that ended up allowing two of the biggest characters in pop culture to go queer. And it was mm-hmm. wonderful. Yeah. I, I would say capital A affectionate. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Murder husbands. And it's complex in the way that, that queer relationships can be complicated in yes. and mm-hmm. complex in real life. Yes. And it's, and a lot of that I think was Mancini coming in and, you know, a fuller bolstering the queer yeah. voice on the show with Mancini. Definitely. Also, uh, just a little tidbit of trivia, the, the DP for Curse and Cult of Chucky, uh, Michael Marshall, he also was the cinematographer for the finale of Hannibal. So there's even a little nod in, um, I think it was Cult of Chucky, where like Chucky just has a little throwaway one-liner about Hannibal's cancellation. Mm-hmm. 
which I totally did not catch uh, <laughs> until now. So I, I thought that was kind of neat. It was a little um, oh, Easter egg, sort of. Also, isn't Tom Holland uh, gay? I, yeah. Yeah. And then, okay. like, that's, that's uh, Fright yeah. Night is also, like, a big... Oh, yeah. yeah. Fright Night, yeah. Fright Night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Queerest movie. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about Fright Night. I was so surprised that, after all that, they made that him Spider-Man. A... <laughs> <laughs> right? Bold choice. Right? He was, he was but you know what? He makes two. it work. Yeah. <laughs> now I want someone to like like put do that real face app with Tom Holland during the death scene in uh, Infinity War. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I don't feel so good, Mister Stark. Mister Mister Stark. <laughs> I just I just love that like everyone's being so smart and then they just like make it dumb. That's just... that's our brand, baby. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, though I, I totally agree with you though on on uh, Chucky. I'm really glad that you brought that up because. Um, they they're far more complicated in how they portray relationships, and also like how, like you're saying, queer characters are portrayed. And the series as a whole is is really fun for me because they're despite being supernatural, they're often kind of like considered. It seems sl- like slashery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a whole bunch sorry, of different things. It's a lot of different things. But I would say that for me, I'm not a huge slasher fan, but I like those movies mm-hmm. because they have so much fun with their their concept and the outlandishness of the world building. Yeah. That they're truly fun. Yeah. And um, where this series is going next is supposedly Don Mancini has been talking about a TV series for years and like it's apparently still happening officially and it's going to continue on from... Uh, where Cult of Chucky left off, which, interestingly <laughs> enough, is where Fiona Duriff's character is finally uh, inhabited by Charles the Ray. So we're looking at a potential television series following uh, Chucky in the body of a female that he just inhabited, and then he's going to have to figure some shit out. Like gender politics is going to happen and like you know that don mancini has already he's already worked with that in seed of chucky and forward uh it it just seems like it's going to be really really intriguing and exciting and i'm here for it oh very cool that's extremely cool you actually just sold me on the show (laughs) i didn't i hadn't seen cult yet and it's like oh shit that's actually kind of amazing so don if you're listening i'd like to be a writer (laughs) on the show and then stop by for an episode (laughs) Tip for tat, and then, you know, I'll yeah, write an yeah, episode, you come on to one episode. I love it. Well, thank you so much for such an excellent suggestion. Really glad to give Don Mancini some love on the episode. Um, Mike, who's your choice for the episode? So my choice um, was uh, James Whale, who is um, predominantly known for his um, horror movies. And yeah, I mean... Um, He's such a interesting and actually really um, tragic kind of story. You know, this was somebody who uh, was a World War One uh, veteran. He actually was a failed cartoonist, which I think was is 
kind of wild. And yeah, he had um, a hit play with Journey's End and they loved it so much they turned it into a movie and then that was a major hit. Of course, Dracula happened and that was a mega hit. So they wanted, like Universal, like wanted to cash in on their like uh, hot young director. Yeah, we got Frankenstein and, um, you know, it flew right kind of, so this was like right before um, the production code was really enforced. That movie was such a hit that they kind of gave him. I mean, he did like other movies uh, after that, like he did The Invisible Man and like one of my favorites, The Old Dark House, which I don't think gets enough love. Um, You know, of course, Bride of Frankenstein uh, is kind of what he's probably best remembered for. You know, that is as gay as you can get. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's just... I love how well, you know, his his run was really brief uh, in films, which is really baffling. And I'll get to that in a second. But like he um, earned so much uh, acclaim from Frankenstein. He was a, he was basically able to do just about whatever he wanted on Bride of Frankenstein. So, you know, he had a very not subtly queer character. Uh, in Dr. Platorius, everything like the mm-hmm. camp values definitely there. You know, his characters are purposely very over the top. Um, I mean, he definitely was was in on the joke. So, yeah, um, you know, what was really tragic was he had so many hits and made um, Universal untold, untold millions of dollars. But mm-hmm. they basically, um, I, like, I think it was like not even a decade after Bride of Frankenstein, he was basically ousted from Hollywood and and keep in mind that this was on the back of three or four mega hits. There's a lot of debate whether or not, you know, him being unapologetically gay kind of killed his career. And, you know, which is such a shame because I mean, I'm such a huge um, universal monster fan, but like, um, yeah, but like, I mean, everything after whale was so kind of, yeah, I would say that the only exception to that is creature from the black lagoon. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that there wasn't any good um, movies after he, you know, his tenure there, but like, they didn't have like that fun. Like they didn't have that, like, you know, he had, there was a certain quality. He, oh mm-hmm. yeah like he so i yeah. mean what made him so efficient was he came from a theatrical background so you know that's why he got hired on frankenstein because they knew they could make it for um not a lot of money but it would be streamlined but he i mean he streamlined it and, and made it awesome but then he made it his uniquely his own yeah Absolutely. Well, and also, like, just for the record, I wasn't contradicting you, so you know, like, or disagreeing with you. Uh, I was saying that, like, out of this, all the subsequent films that came after Bride of Frankenstein. Oh yeah, yeah. There's really only one that I would say that I was that was easily at that level of quality. Oh sure, because sure. he left such an impact. Um, if 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 y'all haven't seen the Old Dark House, uh, I think it's on Shutter. Yes. I think it is yeah. still in Shutter. Um, it's such a great movie. It's so weird. Just like, I mean, it, it doesn't really have a lot of plot, but it's it's more just like a moody kind of weird. It's basically like a haunted house ride that you go on. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Spooky House mm-hmm. the movie. Spooky House. Mm-hmm. It's a spooky house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It's also one of the most quietly influential films of all time. Like, Anyone who's ever made a Haunted House film, anyone who's Mm -hmm. ever made anything that kind of plays in that sandbox, it's always credit. It's always goes back to uh, Old Dark House. 
Yeah, I mean, like, even yeah. the term Old Dark House is kind of, I think, like, that's also kind of a stock term now for, like, a similar kind of setup. Oh, I can believe it. I mm-hmm. don't know if, like, that was yeah. some, like, an old stock term prior to the, his movie or if it was just something that caught on because of afterwards. But, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's like, there was, a, there was, like, a really awful remake that um, it breaks my heart because I'm such a huge a William Castle fan, yeah. but it's dreadful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm with you there, Mike. It's yeah, yeah, it's painful. And I am such a stan of William Castle. Like I, he's, I mean, Castle's not a, a queer director, but I mean, he definitely made some kind of campy, uh, fun horror movies that definitely could be, uh, you know, found by a gay audience, um, like straight jackets, like I adore so much. But, I mean, like, if you really want to live, like, you definitely have to check out his, like... (laughs) Wait, I I feel like I should clarify. Was that, like, if you're not living until you've seen, or was that, like, if you want to live? (laughs) Or I might hunt you down, and it's... It could be both. You don't know. That's the fun of it. (laughs) But I'm so glad you mentioned James Whale, and that that was your choice, because, uh, I mean... I also am a huge fan of the Universal Monsters, and uh, no surprise to anyone, I think uh, Frankenstein, Bride, amazing. I would say that also Invisible Man is one of Universal's most menacing, like truly yes. evil yeah. villains. Yes, Claude Rains yeah. is yeah. so it's, amazing. It's, it's my favorite <sighs> Universal film. That's a good Andre, choice. Best friend. Universal That's a good Monsters. choice, because he, like, yeah. he's one of the few, because like... like uh, because many of them are in like like Wolfman or like like Larry Talbot or Frankenstein are tragic figures, right? But yeah. uh, oh my god, like Invisible Man is like he wants murderous world domination. <laughs> yes, he's gleefully evil. Yeah. I it's love it. So yeah. wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Oops. We can't see him, but he's twirling that mustache. Like, one hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> Considering I just watched Wolf, the Wolfman recently uh for my other podcast mm. i i would have like before rewatching it i would have said he was a tragic figure and now i just want to like yeet him off a tower really? <laughs> yeah he's so whiny it's a terrible so whiny. not his fault <laughs> he really it is totally yeah, yeah, his fault <laughs> i sort of older. love that he's clearly older than his dad <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh, so moisturized. <laughs> Just like you my face, like you know the emoji with like the giant eyes, like that was my face after the first thirty seconds of the film where he's looking into this woman's window from across the street using a telescope and then goes over there and yeah. is like yeah, you got those earrings from the top yeah. drawer of your bed. What the fuck, dude? Set him on fire. And then she's impressed. She's like, oh, I want to know you. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway. You can use a telescope? I, I, I will say, though, that like... <sighs> yeah, so sorry. But Side note. My, my favorite thing about Wolfman is that Universal went along and they made uh, a werewolf film and they were like, uh no. Yes. And you know what what's what's so hilarious is like it, it makes me laugh every time. It's like like Claude Rains is like this little short dude and then like you know uh Lon Chaney like just towers yes. above him. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what 
what was the mom situation <laughs> where this this dynamic happened? <laughs> His um, much taller, much older son. son. Like, yeah. Okay. It's... Okay. Uh, here's you want to hear my explanation. Here's my explanation. Okay. So, and this ignores the laws of time, for the record. But what happened was. They were both born while they were traveling across the country very slowly. And then one of them was born near a nuclear power plant. Okay. Ah. Wait, are you... from the future. Wait, were they being born very slowly? Like this took a lot of time and that's why he's so tall? No, the overall trip. <laughs> okay, okay. I just had to be sure there wasn't time. some weird Cronenbergian <laughs> birth situation going on in a carriage somewhere. I mean you know what? <laughs> Maybe though, but I wasn't. I wasn't there. It took you fourteen months to be born. It was a very slow. Anyway, birth. okay. So <laughs> <laughs> times were different yeah. then. Uh, but anyway, so I, I love James Whale, uh, and then and, and Frankenstein personally means a whole bunch mm-hmm. to me because it was one of the earlier horror films that I discovered. And you know, as a kid growing up. Uh, feeling a little bit on the outs, you know? Uh, Oh yeah, totally. Without, you know, a tribe of my own. I really felt Mm -hmm. for that tragic figure, you know? I think like, Um, like more in Bride of Frankenstein, um, where it's like, again, I really started, I mean, I watched these like movies pretty young, but then like, I think more as like a teenager or like early teens, I started, um, definitely resonating more just because like you know it, it's like again it's kind of like the ultimate like um outsider yeah. story it is yeah um that's yeah. kind of why i like freaks so much also because i feel like that is such the ultimate like i feel like i didn't fit in but like i totally could fit in there kind of thing yeah 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 i would say that like like whale and todd browning are two of my very yeah, favorite exactly. early horror directors and and freaks we've we probably will actually have an episode on it uh is uh so interesting in how it centers on the quote-unquote freaks and shows uh their solidarity and their relationships and i i could definitely see that uh so lovely choice um it wouldn't be this episode if we didn't talk about james will so thank you so much it's it's kind of I wonder for people around our age of a certain age, people who, who kind of grew up with these on, you know, public broadcasting or going to the library or something. Um, Cause these were always at like every library. There was always universal monster films. Um, and yeah. uh, I can mm-hmm. confirm this cause I've been to like three different libraries. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but I, I think it's like a strange thing. Cause a lot of us saw them young and, and Mike, like you hit it. So on the head, like, I loved those films growing up, but then I think, I don't think they under, I understood them and they understood me until I was like a teenager. And it's like, fuck, I am that armadillo in Transylvania. I don't belong (laughs) here, but yet I do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, there is like a handful of movies and, you know, I think about it a lot, especially during like this month, but like, uh, movies that just like, oh man, like it's just, um, made me really feel like me yes. like rocky horror was a big one mm-hmm. elvira's haunted hills was another one and what's kind of awesome is like i've gotten to know the director of that really well 
And it was kind of cool because like I was able to like tell him how much it meant to me. And I think in turn that really meant a lot to him too. But yeah, I mean, these movies were so formative, like at a, a very specific time. Like I can still remember even where I was when I like picked yes. these movies up or watched yeah. them for the first time. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, my, my first uh, Universal Monsters movie was an Evan Costello movie. I was like, wait, this this horror stuff is way more interesting than the comedy. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just got more into it. And that was at the point where, you know, when you're blo- browsing through Blockbuster, um, you know, like I was yesterday. That, that was around the time where Universal started sort of remarketing the Universal Monsters to make it seem like a shared universe, yeah. which... I don't know if they really needed to try that hard to do because they already kind of did with like House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They totally invented the shared universe. It was groundbreaking and pioneering, but no one really went back to analyze that. That's how I discovered it because they had like these new DVD releases of like Universal, like what 50th or whatever anniversary edition of like 70, Preacher 50. and Frankenstein, yeah. Dracula, all that stuff. And that's how I got into it. So like, I mean, if it weren't for mm-hmm. uh, rebranding and Blockbuster, it, I would never have seen these. Oh, that's, yeah. thank you Blockbuster for your Thanks service. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually got it in my head to write Gloria Stewart and get her autograph. Oh, and she... Uh, was so sweet. I sent her my, uh, I guess it was like, do you guys remember like the legacy DVDs that they had? Like they, yeah. they packaged them all together. Mm-hmm. So I sent her um, my Invisible Man and she's, I, I sent her like that and like a uh, note and I just said, hey, I'm such a big fan. Do you mind signing this for me? And she signed it in gold and she wrote me a little note and signed it. And mm-hmm. I'm like, it, it is something I, I just super treasure uh, to this day because like she worked a lot with whale to bring mm-hmm. it back to you know yeah that's extremely yeah. cool absolutely to to bring it back a little bit um i always assumed that the universal monsters were like one universe like i thought that's what europe yeah. was was just back lots you know like yeah, europe is just a shared universe guys. <laughs> yeah no no <laughs> i mean i've never i've never been to europe no but i thought it was like universal like i thought it, that's what i when i was a, yeah. a kid that's what it was it was these back lots those mm-hmm. weird twisted trees mm-hmm. and that there were werewolves and vampires and claude rains and Dwight Fry's running mm-hmm. rampant all there throughout, are. you know, this dark, horrible Europe. <laughs> Literally, that's that's all it is. You know, it's it's funny <laughs> how, like, I, I still really like the Universal movies, but, like, I find, like, now that I'm a little older, I'm more, like, I like the Val Luton kind of stuff more, but, I mean, they're all, like, the Universal stuff's always my go-to, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something, like so artificial it almost feels like a like a fairy tale yeah yeah um it's europe yeah basically yeah it's like a fucking fairy tale (laughs) i love them um uh i'm still a big fan mainly because the creature design is always so good oh yeah like for frankenstein for for um even wolfman for for obviously gilman is amazing um, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein. That that suit so, still holds up. Gilman, it does. Oh um, yeah, will hold up to the one end of the of best cinema. of all time. Oh, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. But yet, the Universal Monster designs. Uh, that's 
the when you say Frankenstein, no one thinks any other Frankenstein. When you say Dracula, yep. Bela Lugosi's yep. nine times out of ten, who they're going to think? Mm-hmm. Invisible Man's always wrapped up in in bandages. It, like mm-hmm. it's they are some of the most iconic, I think, images mm-hmm. of all of mankind. I'm going to go that far. Like it's up there. Like you could probably point. There's an argument. You know, bring a picture of Frankenstein to Mongolian. Somebody be like, oh, that's Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. And I guess I think it's worth mentioning that uh, Jack Pierce was the guy behind uh, like the the look of Dracula, Bride of mm-hmm. Frankenstein, and Frankenstein, Invisible Man, and Wolfman, especially. Yeah. Like he kind of created the transformation scene. Yeah. It's like there is you do see him transform. Like I know it's just like dissolve, 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 but like different film. stages of makeup, yeah. which. I mean, it's, it's sort of just like a, a stop motion version of yeah. like a transformation scene. Yeah, it was, it was truly yeah. innovative. Yeah. And um, uh, I, I do want to do a sort of episode on Jack Pierce at some point mm-hmm. and start getting yeah. to episodes oh. on some of these iconic creators. But I'm so glad you mentioned that, Andre, because mm-hmm. his work literally made them. Yeah, like it, it was yeah. his aesthetic that like really punched through uh, to like pretty much the look that we have for a lot of. Uh, modern horror makeup and effects and stuff like that today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just some of the best of all time. Some of the most iconic easily. And even if you haven't seen these films, they influenced all the people that made films that you love. <laughs> Pretty much. And that's yeah. definitely guaranteed. So yeah. There'd be no Tim Burton without like yeah. James Whale, Todd Farber. Mm-hmm. Like it's, just, it's just fact. There'd be no Del Toro. Nope. There'd be no Carpenter. And I would say like... <laughs> oh. I don't know if you have all, if you all seen this, but Daughters of Dracula. Have have you seen this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That originally that James Whale was supposed to direct that, but I guess mm-hmm. his like take on it was like way too outrageous. And I guess like there's um like I guess his original script still exists somewhere. I mean, talk about like queer subtext uh, in a Universal film. It's rampant, like through the Universal. That's part of I don't know what makes the horror genre so unique is that it's so many creators in different forms from writers of books uh plays screenplays directors actors makeup uh special effects technicians there the queer influence in horror was there cinematically from day one Mm -hmm. um it's Mm -hmm. i mean i know it's cliche to say it's the outsider genre but goddamn right it is like this is (laughs) <laughs> from MoMA one yeah it's it's just from full stop it was like nah it's ours we're taking it sorry guys absolutely you're welcome to join but uh, <laughs> you know. actually I'm, I'm gonna take that as as a really perfect transition into my choice because it's another classic director uh from the earlier era who a lot of people don't know was gay uh so so my choice is fw murnau oh, okay who um so he, he did a lot of iconic films he did a great adaptation of faust he did a lot of lost films he's a german filmmaker that emigrated to the u.s but his most famous film uh in in horror history is 1922's nosferatu so murnau is interesting because he, he was very growing up like philosophically influenced he was in the imperial german army in world war one he made nosferatu in 1922 which is a, one of the most iconic works of the German Expressionist movement, which you know had those stark, stark painted shadows, which were all very dreamlike and surreal. And then he emigrated to Hollywood in 26 and made Sunrise, which is a masterpiece, a couple other films. 
it's so interesting to me because if you look at the landscape of subsequent vampire cinema, Bela Lugosi is is in in Dracula and the Universal films is probably the greatest influence with how we picture vampires in film. It's very tightly um, woven into how Dracula was written from from Bram Stoker, but if you see a vampire in contemporary cinema, it's basically one of two things. It's either a Lugosi style, you know, sexy undead individual, or it's derived from Nosferatu. <laughs> yeah. Just completely yeah. horrifying. Yeah. One or the other. Yep. <laughs> there are two types of cinematic vampires. Uh, so Nosferatu is interesting because uh, Murno didn't have, they didn't have the rights to make Dracula. <laughs> so they, made effectively it's it's a silent german expressionist film and they basically just went in their own direction and made an off-brand dracula it's the greatest asylum film ever made <laughs> it is so amazing uh instead of count dracula the the character is count orlock played by max schreck uh he's a vampire that that comes basically like it basically innovates all the all the, the you know the vampires transported over the sea with his uh increasingly insane um underling and it's this really inhuman characterization of a vampire you have instead of lugosi's uh and and admittedly that was nine years later but instead of his sort of slick back hair cloak his uh, like sexual charisma you have this almost like rat-like humanoid (laughs) who is bald and has janky teeth and is purely predatory <laughs> and there's there's no sexual anything it's just like power yeah. and i will consume everything in your life it's so menacing and intimidating it's a lovely film it's a lovely early film and it's so iconic i i really feel like first of all uh folks at home like if, if you haven't seen original old school nosferatu you gotta because it's a silent film but it's so poignant and the visuals are amazing and the scene of him like his shadow just like slinking up the stairway you'll see so much of it in subsequent films and television adaptations of vampire lore it almost will seem uh very very familiar to someone who's seeing it for the first time because they have seen this before but not in its original form Yeah. yeah exactly exactly right like if you see um every time you see like basically the way they fit it into traditional vampire mythos. And especially if you like, look at what we do in the shadows or stuff that has like more than one type of visual type of vampire. Um, So good. Usually the arc that they do is like when vampires get so ancient and so powerful that they are incomparably menacing. (laughs) It's a Nosferatu style Mm -hmm. vampire. It's counter warlock. Um, exactly <laughs> yeah so i love it um his work uh a lot of people don't know that he was he was widely known to be gay at the time which in his era him. was was amazing tragically he only lived to 42 but <sighs> um and and a lot of and and also tragically a lot of his early early films are lost because a lot of early films of the silent era are lost to history yeah. uh especially as they started to repurpose their materials for the war efforts because uh, who needs art when you can kill people um even the the copies of uh the nosferatu film uh, celluloids were actively being destroyed by the stoker estate if i believe if i remember correctly yeah, yeah. and there was only one really? surviving print that became the the copy that everyone has seen to this day 
Mm-hmm. So yep. whoever did that, wow. I, I think there was an article or a hundred that was about this, but uh, I, I don't remember if they're named or if it was like some sort of organization or if it was just found in an attic somewhere. But that person or that organization deserves like like a recurring yearly award for yeah. continuing yeah. to mm-hmm. keep that film safe. Absolutely. Where now it's like unlosable. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's could you invaluable. imagine like horror without Nosferatu? Just having maybe Orlock looking up over the over her at the end, you know, that famous shot. Uh, mm-hmm. Like that would be the one still kind of like London after midnight or something where you just have like these few images. Yeah. And you just I couldn't imagine yeah. that being a lost film like that. Absolutely. Uh, you just weirdly broke my heart. Like uh, now I have to think of it. If you see any any vampire film these days literally any for the last 100 years it's it's intellectual origins uh it's it's cinema origins are some combination of dracula and nosferatu yeah yeah it's 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 everywhere even video games like you often find a uh as you said like older vampires or mutants even they all kind of start looking like nosferatus yep and uh yeah it's uh, how would you recommend watching it though? Because there's so many different like soundtracks. Like I always love the Philip Glass soundtrack to Nosferatu. I know, like yeah, yeah Kino Kino put out a really good one. I heard it on PBS. Yeah, because he did one for Dracula too. <laughs> and I there's like oh a weird God. '80s hard rock one too. I think <laughs> somebody did. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I feel like those, those new revisionist scores might be better on repeat viewings. Um, so like mm-hmm. I, I don't know what exact tracks they have on uh, say Shutter right now because they still have it streaming. I think it's just the original, um, just stock. Yeah, music like the score, the Erdman score, or just like pieces of yeah. uh, popular classical music. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm looking at it for y'all, but anyway, so it, it's nice. definitely worth your time. Um, you know, it's it's a slower pace than a lot of modern films because modern films are made for people with no attention spans. But um, but the visuals are amazing, and it's definitely worth it for the influence alone. You'll see it in all your favorites. It's also, I mean, just not just in terms of vampires, but once again, like the stylistic, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what was coming out of like the German expressionist and Cubist movement in uh, the 1920s in film is still rippling through it today. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. There would be no like the Universals came from this. You know, almost like they took that that the mood, the atmosphere, the kind of art direction. Yeah, like like German expressionist influence yeah. on modern horror aesthetic. You can't really underestimate it because the the use of shadow, the use of darkness, the use of mm-hmm. eerie aesthetic uh, visual themes basically came out of that, um, and then got filtered through noir, and then went forward. I also love just how still, um, like some of my favorite, just how. St- you know, the camera doesn't move and just like people sometimes don't move. Like it makes for just these incredible mm-hmm. still images until you realize you've been staring at something moving and living for 30 seconds, maybe mm-hmm. 45 seconds, however long the crank is. And uh, it, it's just, they find ways to burn in your brain that way. It's almost like uh, uh, if you leave like an LCD screen on too long, yeah. it's like a yep. news organization logo. Just it, There's something magical about silent films totally. that just yeah. you can't recreate today. Um, like you can try, but it just, I, I don't know what it is. If it's just, if it is the technological disadvantages that they had, you know, cause we can do anything, we can replicate anything, but you know, when you're forced to sit there and think about how can we move a still image, like these pioneers, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think like for me, part of it is that they innovated all the techniques 
that we use today and all the editing techniques and all the, and of course there have been subsequent innovations like, like throughout film history, but a lot of what we know as effective cinema came out of those generations. And then I think another part of his kind of um, like Hitchcock would call uh, basically the silent film era, like pure cinema Mm -hmm. because it's a visual medium and they had to tell effective stories using only the visual and to do that effectively. And so in the case of a masterpiece, like, like uh, Nosferatu or, or Murnau's Sunrise later on, which is, which is not horror, but it's very surreal. The visual storytelling is unparalleled now. Cause now, like if you look at even like a, like a silent comedy, right? Yeah. Like they had to make you laugh using the physical, using timing, using complicated layered you know, paintings on glass to create. Mm-hmm. Even sometimes paintings on the, the film cells, like a lot of, uh, yeah. I, I think it was modern times where Chaplin did this uh, this bit with um, roller skates and like in a mall where there's like no yeah. balcony, which is by the way, really unsafe. Yep. <laughs> do not do that at home. He had, it was just a wall there, but he just, he, they had a f- photo of some like lower floor of said mall. And then they just put that over the film. Or I think actually in the camera, I'm I'm remembering this wrong, but it's something like that. It's like it's not even forced perspective. It's literally a false image being shown to you from the camera's point of view. And same with Buster Keaton, he did that all the time too. Like he mathematically plotted all of this out. Yeah, it's it, it's something that no one would ever want to do today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. no, totally. It's it's exactly like the the art behind it is is amazing. Yeah. And now to do comedy, you know, you'll find mm-hmm. so many films that just rely on dialogue, which is which is a talent, you know. But <laughs> they forget the visual because of the yes. dialogue. Shut up. <gasps> Sorry. What? <Stop. laughs> oh no no no! I was just here for the tea. Like, go oh, on. Fine. <laughs> okay. Cool. Sorry. Sorry. But but yes yes exa- exactly exactly so it. like bigger <laughs> well he's no Ryan Murphy but um, you could be Kevin I Smith. have opinions <laughs> but anyway yeah so that that that's my choice um, check out some Renault if you're you're keen on silent films and you should be because visually you'll get lost in it it's like nothing else um, which makes it feel like you're watching something you shouldn't be watching yes um, yeah and so. Uh, with that, uh, th- thank you all. Those are wonderful filmmakers to to kind of you know point towards the folks at home. And uh, I want to move on now. We we've all chosen favorite films too that have that sort of center you know queer characters, perspectives, themes, etc. Uh, I'll start for this one for for Andrew. Absolutely. Uh, this one's my framing of it's a bit different. Uh, whereas we have a queer director, not explicitly making a queer movie, but a movie when. I think only a queer director could have made in terms of a lot of what he does. Like there's the quote I said earlier about um, I'm not doing anything explicitly gay with the work. Cause this was in reference to explicit uh, Lord of illusions. Um, but when viewing the film, you have the character of Butterfield who is openly queer, semi-androgynous, gender fluid, maybe completely in love with Nick's the cult leader. Cause the film's about a cult, has broken into real magic. Uh, the other quote I said earlier, I'm a man who wanted to be a God and changed his mind. Um, and mm-hmm. they kill him, bury him deep. And one of them becomes uh, pretty much David Copperfield, but he can do it mm-hmm. for real. 
And they rescued a young girl who grows up to be Fomka Jansen, uh, which is always awesome because she's great. And uh, one of the things I loved about this, and this is one of the things I, I wanted to highlight with, because Fomka Jansen's a six, she's six foot tall. She's, she's a taller woman. And most films, things I've seen her with, you can tell they put actors in lifts or maybe kept her out of heels. They fully embrace the fact that she's the same fucking size, if not maybe an inch or two taller than Scott Bakula. And I love it. Um, Harry Damore is a private investigator who gets wrapped up in this kind of supernatural thing. And I don't want to spoil the movie too much for people who haven't seen it, but it, it boils down to cult shenanigans and the little girl that they saved in the beginning when she grows to be Fomka Jansen. She's kind of in a in name only marriage with this illusionist by the name of Swan and Swan and his assistant. Like I, the way I read this film was like Swan and his assistant were essentially a, a closeted gay couple who raised this woman. And then for reasons, because they have to protect her from supernatural entities, he married her to kind of keep his homosexuality, sexuality quiet. And so that she could be safe because she also only feels safe to them. And then this man comes in and kind of interrupts this once again, like uh, the film does a lot of stuff with, uh, cause Swan is also caught up in kind of like a, a triangle with Butterfield and Nix, who is the cult leader. And there's a lot of interesting parallels where it's just cause Nix could be completely viewed as an older man who is gaslighting another man and then upset mm-hmm. when he views it as you left me for a woman when it's, you left me for a child. Um, but he views it as you left me for a woman. And there's a lot of interesting reads on this. And then Butterfield is completely androgynous and just not <laughs> afraid. I mean, you can see if you like Bowie's cod piece in Labyrinth, like yeah, you're, <laughs> you're, 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 Butterfield wears some. <laughs> it's the official cod piece. Butterfield of said he podcast. didn't need the cod piece and said, you know what? Give me the pants. And uh, it's kind of wonderful. And it's just like, and there's. It's a wonderfully flamboyant film with its <laughs> fashions, with uh, this wonderfully extravagant uh, magic show, which typically when it's a male magician, their assistants are female. And this you have men and women and, you know, haircuts aren't exactly what you think. You know what I mean? Like he mixes forms and, and, and genders and the, the gaze mm-hmm. of this film is not where you typically would find your gaze. You have Fomka Jansen, but the film's completely interested in Scott Bakula and different forms of vest. And I completely love the idea that this, because I remember this being, this was a mass marketed horror film um, for, you know, like not a big studio, but there's mm-hmm. an $11 million budget back in 1995. Wasn't something to scoff at for a horror film. And Barker's name was behind it. And like, it was a big release it flopped of course because we didn't have taste in 95 um but <laughs> but it's 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 a film that you know it, it you mentioned earlier like that fusion of horror and noir but it subverts both because we know <laughs> the mystery from the outset and usually i criticize films for this but the mystery that we think we know goes so much deeper and opens up so many more questions and this feels almost like this could have been part 1 in almost an anthology series involving harry demore which could have been amazing because it, it 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 allows you to go all right so magic is real they pull it from some horrible mm-hmm. dimension there's uh, things are much bigger and broader there's mentions of demonic possession which it, he dealt with uh, as a case prior to and and barker lays in like he's he's one of my favorites king does it really well too with that kind of like broader dread that he can paint in a single line or an ex- like yeah. a single exchange like a cop's like so was the kid really possessed 
And, uh, you know, Demore's just like, probably. And the guy's like, by what? And Demore's like, mm, the usual. But it, it opens the world up complete because you're like, the fucking you. And this guy's just a normal cop. You know, like he's nothing to do with Harry Demore's paranormal stuff. And I love that he just kind of shrugs it off and accepts it. It's a wonderful overlooked film that there's queer people. There's queer relationships. It's director and creator is very queer. And I just find it, it kind of fun to watch a director, a queer director, make a film that isn't necessarily queer on, on, on a surface level or even like on a subtextual level. You can read in very much so. But on a stylistic level, a straight man couldn't have made this film. And I think that's that's what makes it so fucking interesting. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I love that mm, you, you brought yeah. up because it is. Uh, I mean, when people see Barker, they or when they think Barker, they, they yep. think Candyman, they think Hellraiser, they think a whole bunch of films that are super valid and amazing. One of which is my <laughs> choice. I won't say which until it's my turn. But uh, but. Lord of Illusions is yes. both brilliant and way underseen, and it still yes. carries a lot of that critical eye yes. that Barker is so good at. Yeah. Fantastic protagonist, great villain, yeah, uh, really cool. Uh, they're dated as hell now. I think I put in my letterbox like mid '90s CGI is a, either great or terrible depending on your tastes. Results will vary, you know. Like so, yeah. I, where they lack maybe in technological uh, grace. <laughs> yeah. Their designs are always interesting because you have a man who's also a painter, a man who sketches behind the wheel, <laughs> and he's yeah. his visions are always fantastic. And, and regardless of data special effects, the designs are great. Just pause the movie and look at Origami Man and tell me, yeah, the special totally. effects, the CGI is terrible, but it's an Origami Man. Right, right. I mean, like, like, okay. So here's here's my big criticism. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, Swing oh. for fences. Okay, so he adds. So you take the Star Wars, the initial Star Wars trilogy, which are <laughs> flawless showcases of practical effects. They're brilliantly conceived just... and executed. They're super fun, great world building. And then he adds low rent early CGI yes. to them, and then only lets us have access yes. to that version of the film, which is a. It's it's really just like painting. It's like if you have the Mona Lisa, right? And then you just like like staple gun a meme to it. <laughs> yes. Like it's not it's appropriate <laughs> at all. But but here's the second part of my criticism. Where is that lust for improving VFX? Why don't like if you're really invested in that sort of practice, why don't you go to some of these films early <laughs> VFX? that are great films and then like instead of fucking up star wars like that's a great idea like, improve movies that are great <laughs> yeah. and just need a little bit of yeah. a boost um, like, it is a great idea <laughs> right but it, but it's part of the charm because yeah, like for me totally. i don't know if anybody else does this sometimes but if it can fit if you can fit it into the internal logic of it like how do i know what magic looks like i've never seen real magic it looks like dodgy's 1995 cgi that. Mm. how do i know what a goblin looks like i don't so it's gonna look like that puppet i saw in that that show one time you know <laughs> sure <laughs> i mean that's like spawn how do you know that like the, a you know devil how, doesn't look like how dare you windows 95 shots fired <laughs> yeah lucifer <laughs> take that <laughs> 
I only want the legend <laughs> Lucifer. It's the only one for me. Objectively, oh, darkness. the best. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, but like mm-hmm. something like but that. But it's it's these films. Cheaper, you know, I look at Lord so of Illusions, and I know why. Right? It, 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 there's gore in this. There's the great Barker. Uh, purple yeah. opera that we all love is kind of Francis Bacon of, of the dreamscape that he is like that's all there but it, it's also it's a film for adults it's slower paced because it's also mm-hmm. a noir right. film right. that's a character introduction to someone that they were hoping to maybe go a little bit bigger with and because and they should have this film's squarely aimed at adults it's not like Hellraiser which is because I think it's also longer mm-hmm. it's about a two hour film if you watch the director's cut, which I do recommend, because they cut out twelve minutes of character and story. I mean, if you're watching a Barker <laughs> film, you should always watch the director's yes. cut where available. Like they're always, literally, yes. always better. Um, take take that eleven twelve minutes because it, it it totally makes the film and it, it's part of the texture, it's part of the fabric, and it's part of the fun. Is that Barker gives you because when you know that Harry Demore in his fiction has gone on to fight like Cenobites and has dipped his toes in yeah. the dream yeah. sea like he's done amazing things so cenobites automatically exist in lord of illusions which awesome you know mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and basically like if you take like a philip marlowe and you're like oh the mystery is scary Just, supernatural if that is the premise but what i i also lands. love about the more whereas in like paranormal detectives he doesn't seek it out like he, everything he it keeps finding mm-hmm. him he's become a target and he doesn't right. mean to and he doesn't want anything really to do with it but it's like yeah you keep bringing me here like because in the books his, he gets more right. and more tattoos that are actually just like sigils and runes to keep things away from him and it's in the movie right. Scott Bakula's got a sweet back tattoo um, seriously <laughs> if if you have a thing for Scott Bakula hashtag Scott Bakula back tattoo this movie's gonna do it for you there's a lot of shirtless Scott Bakula there's Almost full frontal Scott. Ba- it's got all the Scott Bakula you need. Baby yeah, Scott dude, Bakula. I, but I, once again, it, it's a really cool, like, just supernatural mystery occult film with some really disgusting images and outlandish characters. And, and Barker deserved better and we deserved more. And we can start by y'all queuing it up after the episode yeah it's available on scream factory love it uh there is like a very nice edition of it um Mm -hmm. and uh Mm -hmm. yeah yeah you should pop it in i have that one yeah it's been a while since i've seen it so i think i'm gonna get to that Uh, well thank you for that that's a wonderful recommendation um i feel like going with uh with mike on this one for his Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to go with uh, probably uh, Bride of Frankenstein uh, as my my movie, just because. So I was originally going to talk about All Dark House, but, uh, you know, it was made by a, a, a queer creator, obviously. But like Bride mm-hmm. of Frankenstein is more his I don't know, using his voice and um, kind of making almost like a proclamation, <laughs> like when that was really pretty much unheard of like especially in the 30s yeah uh like i said it's one of these uh really formidable films it's something that uh i really loved as a kid but then you know when i got a little older it really clicked with like you know okay you know like this is 
the Frankenstein's monster is kind of like the ultimate outsider, you know, like that's kind of how I felt. And then you have like Dr. Platorius, who is like the most flamboyant, wonderful, mad scientist. I, I wrote a piece last year um, about James Whale, and I was saying about how, you know, there's this monologue that Platorius has about being booted out of the university for knowing too much. And, you know, it's really mm. kind of chilling and also sad because that's kind of what happened to Whale. Like, they basically... Uh, used him and booted him out of movies, which is so fucked up because, I mean, Universal's still making money off his films. It's just, it's really sad, but um, it's such a great movie, though. It's iconic, and um, when I think of, like, queer-coded, like, horror films, it's kind of, like, one of the things, like, one of the first things that kind of comes to mind. Um, I mean, especially since, like, it was a very out- director making it and and lending it uh lending his voice to it and you know to bring it back to clive barker i know he's um gone on record as saying like it's one of his favorite movies and he He helped fund that it's like one of the best queer horror movies maybe ever Um, brennan fraser uh james whale semi biography i guess oh okay he produced it yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. realize he. Um, it really is. I guess what he produced, like, was one of the producers. Nice. Yeah. That's yeah. such a good movie, by the way. Um, oh my god, that's heartbreaking. <laughs> you know, if um, you're looking to start like exploring maybe like queer uh, coded horror, I think that's kind of. I mean, for me, it's kind of ground zero. I mean, yeah, there's probably. Um, maybe like films before that that maybe has subtext but i mean i feel like a lot of it's like not subtext it's text you know (laughs) yeah 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 i would also say that like another virtue of bride of frankenstein and there are many is that it has my personal favorite frame story of all time oh yeah that um yeah yeah, he fought for that yeah yeah, because it, it starts with, uh, you know, Mary Shelley and, mm-hmm. and Percy Blythe Shelley and Lord Byron together. Uh, and they're talking yep. about her story and her literature. <laughs> and then she's like, no, 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 no. There's a lesson here. And the story's not done. Moving on. And they're kind of, I mean, they're, they're not very negative. Lord Byron's yes. a prick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, they're idiots. You know what I mean? Like, I want to fight that prick. <laughs> It'd be pretty I'm, easy right I'm now. on to you, Lord Byron. <laughs> You son of a bitch, I'm coming for you. Exactly. And that's the thing that I love about the, the frame story so much because it obviously, it centers her and puts her in such a positive, intelligent light. If memory serves, Percy Bless Shelley, not that bad. He's fine, right? But it kind of treats him as her appendage and Lord Byron yeah. is kind of a turn. Yeah. We have to be the first <laughs> podcast in history that's tried to pick a fight with Lord Byron. <laughs> uh look if any podcast yeah. no, he, he's pretty universally hated yeah <laughs> as a person that's true yeah. I, I i will say this and this is on the record if any podcast in the podcast sphere can resurrect lord byron for the purposes of a fight fisticuffs <laughs> we'll it figure charity. it out yeah i'll do it for charity yeah i'm gonna do that black magics well, I think uh, Mary Wollstonecraft's um, role in the beginning was also mm-hmm. a little bit more supportive of um, of Mary Shelley's, like, no, it's okay, like, read through the yeah. story, we want to hear it, shut up, Byron. Yeah, <laughs> yes. right, right. 
pretty much that. so it's it's just interesting to me because you know it's 1935 but as as far as the frame story is it's a fairly pro-feminist frame story for 1935 she holds the power in that room no matter how she they does. stand above her the way she calmly yeah. just keeps going about her business mm-hmm. just because she's sitting if i'm remembering correctly it's right. been a while since i've seen bride but she yeah. holds all the power in that room it is rather right. wonderful you're right and and the way the tone is structured you're definitely giving her the attention and the respect like she's right in every scene that she's in well it, it's almost like school you know, it's just, you got the one who's sucking up to her, mm-hmm. the husband, yep. and then you got Lord Byron, that snooty Lord um, Voldemort loving prick. Yeah. He's the antagonist that kind of drives yeah. it. Yeah. You know? But I love it. I love that it centers the authoress. And I just wanted to add that, Mike, because, like, there's so many things that are excellent oh, ahead gosh. of their time in that film. Um, yeah, I just, like I said, it, it's definitely um, probably one of the uh, more me- meaningful movies to me. Um I mean, especially like movies that like I watch now and it still holds up um, like incredibly well. It's definitely the kind of movie that like there's nuances that like I still find new things um, about it. There's only really like a handful of movies from like my childhood that like really hold up really well. Um, That's definitely one of them. So awesome. I love it. Such a good choice. Thank you. How about Luna? You go next. So my pick uh, for my for the my favorite queer film to talk about today was actually recommended by my partner, who is amazing at tracking down amazing films and then exposing me to them. And so this film is called Good Manners. Awesome. It is a Portuguese film uh, released in 2017, directed and written by Juliana Rojas and uh, Marco Dutra. I have to say I was really challenged when it came to like how do I talk about this film because it is so easy to spoil this movie um so I'm going to try my best so without giving giving away too many spoilers it is a dark queer fantasy or fairy tale really and from my perspective the film is about womanhood from many angles mother nurturer caretaker and protector uh many of the energies that you associate with the feminine side of the spectrum driven by the wa- by water and the moon, um, which is by design, I think. The photography is incredible, as are the actors. Mm-hmm. Isabel Zua, which I may be pronouncing everything incorrectly because I, I, I've studied Latin languages and Portuguese is like all of them, and it's very confusing to me, <laughs> so I'm doing my best. Um, <laughs> so Isabel uh, plays... Clara, who is a, and she is a black Portuguese actress with an incredible range of emotion. Uh, her presence on film is always calming and grounding to me. Her acting is soft and malleable and makes her the perfect Clara for the, for the film, uh, really fits the character. And during the first act, Isabel acts across from Marjorie Estiana, Estiano, uh, who appears to be an accomplished Brazilian TV actress, so that's cool. Um, The first act shows no men. Uh, Any man in the first act is basically a disembodied Mm -hmm. voice, which I found interesting. Um, And so basically they're like NPCs in this story of two women who eventually spark a relationship. As we tend to be. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a disembodied voice right now. That's true. So am I, though. So, you know, whatever. I'm not <laughs> sure any of you have bodies, technically. 
I, yeah, I haven't proved, well, actually, we haven't proven that to each other at all. We've only ever been voices or videos. I feel like we're all disembodied torsos, at least. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, one of my favorite queer elements of the first act is the cinematography. There are these, like, long close-up shots on characters at times that made me feel, like, the familiar anxiety of, like, does this person see me the way I see them? Do they see me seeing them in the way that I am seeing them? A.K.A. like, romantically or sexually and not just, like, hi um but you can't just be like yo not straight let's hang out (laughs) so so i don't know if that's how it was intended but because it is a queer relationship that's how i felt watching it and then the second act is quite different uh it has more to do with isabel the the character clara's relationship with another character and it's frankly very difficult to talk about the second act without spoiling the movie entirely um so I'll try to be vague, but uh, the second second act has elements of issues that disproportionately impact the queer community, such as um, perceived and or actual overwhelming loneliness in a crowded room or in a, in a community, uh, suicidal ideation, and self-regulation in terms of public expression. And I feel like that comes across pretty strongly and unapologetically in the second act. Um, so... In general, the film is striking, to say the least, and I highly recommend it. I love it. That's a that's a wonderful choice. Definitely. I second that recommendation. I actually just finished watching it for the first time uh, before this. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. It is nice. so good. I haven't seen it yet. Yes. Where is it like available? Uh, I bought it. You bought it? Um, um, I yeah. watched it on Canopy, which is like the library streaming service, I think. It's like yeah, yeah, Canopy yeah. with a K. They give you like five movie or titles to watch per month, but it just like refreshes. Oh, yeah. awesome! Um, they have like a really, really beautiful looking HD transfer on there. Ooh, uh, wow! Super recommended. Okay, cool. And I don't know. Uh, so I don't know exactly how accurate this is because just watches sometimes a little slow to update. But apparently, you might be able to see it on movie. I think I saw that. Oh, yeah. nice! Movie. I don't have that yet, but um, I'm gonna try to get either that or the Criterion Channel. Ooh, I want that Criterion. Yeah, I go Criterion. I used to have um, Filmstruck, and I adored it. It was my jam. Yeah, I almost subscribed to that, and then it died. Yep. Same boat. Yeah. <laughs> I was a little bit annoyed because. Um, it prevented me from doing my startup, which was films truck where I would just, oh, you know, no. you tell me what film you wanted and I would drive my truck full of films to your place. And it would be like a <laughs> self-delivered. <laughs> I mean, I would have been killed by the, by the Rona anyway. Maybe you dodged anyway. that bullet, the film truck. It's true. <laughs> it's true. God damn it. I had a great film truck. I don't know. I feel like you could have, you could have got, like done it through the pandemic just by like throwing the films at people and just staying far away from them like have a film canon <laughs> yeah you could like frisbee them just going back to hellraiser you could just be like the the disc um cenobite <laughs> you're just like shooting the movies oh, the into people's yes. <laughs> oh no oh my god how dare you how dare you bring him up oh, all i'm saying is, so is bring that king back bring him back <laughs> Oh, it's a wonderful. You should be the leader of the franchise. Yeah, <laughs> reeling it in. I love it. Yeah. 
R.I.P. <laughs> film strip. <laughs> it's the new pinhead. It's just CD yeah. guy. They literally did have such sites to show me. He just makes like he just makes mini disc oh man. Yeah. Just shooting mini discs. Anybody oh, remember God. those? Yeah. <laughs> iPod the iPod Nano Bean. It's just like you know, it's got oh, like the God. the little dial in its belly, and his like stomach skin just twists. The, the Technobytes. <laughs> I, I did want to bring it back to, to good manners because like I did <laughs> take some notes too while I was watching just to like further conversation. Yeah, yeah, please share. I, I found it interesting that so Anna or Anna, uh, the the mother, um, when she's talking about the backstory of the father of the child that she's carrying, it goes to this beautiful like set of illustrated images to sort of just oh, like amazing. go back to the the fairy tale feel of meeting this person the way that character is reintroduced in that flashback or retelling i guess it made me think a lot of a uh, cycle of the werewolf or like even silver bullet because mm-hmm. it had it has that imagery of the priest being adamant about this evil being destroyed and then as the creature gets shot in the arm and then the next day they go to the church and the priest opens the door and his arm is in a sling. And the only person who knows is the person who shot him and the priest himself. Mm-hmm. And like, that's just one um, uh, image that really stuck out to me. Yeah, absolutely. You're so right. I thought it was really cool. I don't know if that was like specifically a reference or if it was just something that happened to be simple. I feel like it had to be. It was so specific. Yeah, it, it was a very it was very specific because he didn't have to be a priest and he didn't have to be shot, but like there needed to be some way, I think, of like bridging the gap because uh, mm. Anna is yeah. so worried. Like when she goes to the doctor's office, I think they do they do the ultrasound, and she asks if the baby's normal, mm-hmm. and there's like this worry on her face that you don't quite comprehend. She cries. There's like a, yeah. t- a tear. Uh, even when she's singing that lullaby. Yeah. Oh, this movie's just so good. I could talk about it forever. It's yeah. It's got... <laughs> and now that's making me think about the role of religion in the film. <laughs> uh, okay. I'll, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. And then uh, religion <laughs> is also... I just wanted to mention this one thing. that The landlady, uh, when she sees this boy at his most vulnerable stage, which, um, Luna, you know what I mean, but no one else really does. <laughs> um, yep. Then she... Yeah kind of freaks out and then she brings the mother out and then she forces the idea of religion to bring in like a priest to baptize him and bless him bless the house and she's doing this without anyone's approval or say or consent yeah yeah and uh it's just like i think that also a lot of people who have been trapped in these kinds of situations where they're brought into a religious family or tradition they have to be shaped and corrected because they have inherent flaws and joel has not those exact flaws but he has flaws that are disagreeable with the church right it's it's very uh, i guess reflective of an experience that many queer people people have had if they grew up Mm -hmm. around the church and the church tried to quote fix them 100 fucking um, percent or pray for them to be normal again yeah uh, which is all bullshit, by the way. Uh, I'm just going on the record. Yeah. And Joel hasn't even begun to, like, explore who he is yet. Like, he still doesn't know what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. He's eight, I think. Yeah, he's, Can I he's just still eight. I just say listening to you guys talk around the plot of this film is like trying to <laughs> listen to a, a Saw movie, like, Jigsaw tape. And you're like, all right, I'm... I'm trying to figure <laughs> out what you're talking about, and I think I know, but then I don't know. This is kind of wonderful. 
I, it feels to me like like it feels to me like listening to someone attempt like you're listening to someone trying to fuse a bomb. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, okay, so if I well, hopefully it makes it seem more interesting. Yeah, it's like if like, I if I know. cut this wire, then oh wait, is that the right one? Okay, well maybe if I cut around this wire, no, that's the Jesus wire. Cut around the Jesus wire. <laughs> Don't even touch that wire. Oh man, I feel like yeah, this is Jesus wire. I have so much to say about homophobia and transphobia in the oh church. My God. Oh my it's that true. Like its own episode. Oh, and then like in the finale, it pulls this classic angry mob, which I mean made me think of Bride of Frankenstein. Of course, yeah, I wrote that in my notes. Although I'm not sure how exactly they knew where they were, but that's. That's neither here nor there. I, I know, but I'll, I, Jesus. Won't, I, I, I won't. It's fine. Yeah. It, it gave us a great finale. <laughs> yes. An incredible. Love it. Yeah. Love it. So good. Okay. I want to talk about it more. Andre, you and I are just going to have to get like virtual coffee and talk about this film. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, but anyone who hasn't seen it, seriously, watch it. Yeah. I just yeah. Uh, saw that you can also rent it. Um, so it's like on VOD. It's pretty, pretty easy to find. Okay, well, so. we're going to just have to all have a watch. But And for you folks at home, maybe we'll invite you on our new <laughs> Discord server. Plug! What? <laughs> uh, but thank you both. We have a Discord server? For such a, we do, <laughs> thanks to the gent who helped me set it up, Andrew. And to me, for knowing nothing about coming it. Coming soon, humanoids. <laughs> coming soon. And we will advertise it until you're sick of it. Uh, but thank you both for 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 that. We'll we'll definitely organize a watch. Uh, Andre, what was your what, your film choice? It's a Spanish film from um, 1975. It's directed by um, Juan Lopez Moctezuma, who a lot of people will know recognize from uh, Alucarda. But this is his first film uh, that he directed, having done nothing prior. the The whole story behind this guy was he just did a lot of uh, commercial work, like um, photography direction production and uh, he just had this mind for for horror he knew everything there was to know about it at the time so robert yaman and henry bollinger were uh, these american producers who were trying to get uh, a film off the ground and they wanted to do a horror picture and they they got this like six or seven picture deal and uh, for the first one they decided to take this uh this story called uh, mary mary bloody mary and they found this this director that was highly recommended and they were really uneasy about it until uh, they picked his brain about horror properties and stories and he really knew what he was doing they they filmed this mostly in i think california and then also in mexico so that they could probably get a tax credit or something and they needed to have uh, a mexican actor or actress and it's it's a story about this woman who lives in her own like painting studio she she drives around like this really crappy uh volkswagen style trailer and she sells her paintings picks up hitchhikers brings them back to her house uh rips their throat open and just drinks their blood okay so she's she's a vampire but she needs to use like tools or instruments to like access the blood sort of and uh she finds a hitchhiker who has just lost his way and it's raining, and he just needs somewhere to, to stay for the night. She lets him in, but she doesn't do what she normally does. In fact, she actually holds out and goes hungry for the night just to give him a place to stay. But in the meantime, she still has one-off situations where 
she does prey on people to drink their blood and continue to exist. And her and this hitchhiker decide to start pursuing a relationship together. He doesn't know anything about uh, what she is or even where she came from. And the audience doesn't really know that either. She has a, um, a painting class that she goes to where her instructor sees Mary come in with her, her new boyfriend and he's sort of just like sitting in on the class and she's going over, you know, the instruction. So there's a, there's a whole love triangle thing that happens between them where he knows that she doesn't like him and she's in the background preying on all these people just to drink their blood. But she doesn't do it for these two people because she's Mm -hmm. shown to have this genuine care and affection, which is something that creatures like Mm -hmm. her in movies like this, especially in the 70s, don't tend to employ. She has this uh, father figure that looms above her. She has a painting of him, and it's like very grotesque. Her boyfriend asks about it, and she says, it's my father. He's very old. He's deformed. I just keep that painting here. There's another vampire killer just on the loose. And without really making it seem as suspenseful as it sounds, um, it is her father, and he's just like killing his way over to find her to warn her about what she's going to become so cool and i'll leave that there but it is played by the the great john carradine but yeah there's there's just like a bisexuality pansexuality in this film especially directed by as far as i know a straight male it's not played for novelty everyone is represented uh, respectfully equitably and nothing is remarked upon Uh, as this being such a sensational thing, especially for back in the mid-70s. Yeah. Novelty or spectacle. Yeah. Some sort of spectacle. Yeah. And I just found that really, really admirable, especially when the scene where Mary and her painting instructor, she has a falling out with her, but internally, Mm -hmm. where she makes a decision that she doesn't want to make. It's really heartbreaking. And like, I, I don't want to get too specific because it will kind of ruin that moment. I don't know. Mm. It's, it's just really heart-wrenching in a way that is hard to describe. Oh, yay. That's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's a tragic film, but it's just, it has so much care and affection woven into Sounds it that great. it's, I don't know. It's just, it's really weighty that way. That's kind of the key word, I, I, affection. Yeah. Is you can, you can have filmmakers that present you know, and, and you feel it's just virtue signaling and it's just window dressing because it's topical or it's because like, hey, look. And then there's filmmakers, creators, you know, queer or not, who genuine affection because people are people, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it, that's that's so beautiful to see. It's, it's I think that tragedy and, the, and that heartbreak works especially hard in a horror movie because there's always this elemental dread built yeah. in because it's a horror film and we all know what that means. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this sounds awesome. Yeah, no, it, it's it's fantastic. Uh, I I don't know where it would be available to watch like on a streaming basis because I I was able to rent a disc of this. I don't imagine that it would be too much because so this was like a code red Blu-ray that I found. Yeah, this one was like one of their limited uh, ten thousand. Um, yeah, Kino has been um, re-releasing some um, code red and Scorpion stuff, so maybe in the future they might repress that. Yeah, I mean, I can see a DVD for it, a, a DVD of it for about thirteen dollars, but like. The only Blu-ray I can see is like a region two mm-hmm. for fifteen bucks. 
And even then, like that's kind of limiting for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. That's but so no, good. this one is definitely worth uh, searching out, uh, looking for, because I I still haven't seen Alucarda, uh, admittedly, but like this one is this is a fantastic first film, and um, I don't know, it's just uh, just the that tragic weight of grappling with someone that you love to sort of like let them go physically and mentally is just such a such a heavy stylistic choice for your story and it, it's really resonated with me and not even just like connecting with paternal themes either which is its own thing it's like i don't want to be like my father yeah. oh it sounds tragic and beautiful i'll definitely keep an eye out it's wonderful yeah um apparently it's on youtube so you oh, folks cool. can find yeah. it at home it's got a great um, theme song. It doesn't Yay. have like a Mary, Mary, Bloody Mary in the in the lyrics or anything, but the theme song is, it, it has a double meaning. Oh, it's really awesome. cool. I love movies with theme songs. That's right? a thing we need to bring back. I agree. Yeah. Always a bonus point for me. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for such a great recommendation. And Mike, thank you for finding out that, that it's easy to find. Ooh, fun. Yeah. And then, uh, so my choice, I, I really didn't want to double, double up on a filmmaker, but I wanted to also choose something that was truly important to me and for its own reasons i picked hellraiser the clive barker directed film from 1987 based on the hellbound heart okay so the plot of hellraiser y'all probably know it at home uh we certainly do but effectively this hedonistic gent frank cotton (laughs) that's a that's a polite way to put it (laughs) yeah This. Oh my god, he's great. Um the creepiest role Andrew Robinson's ever played, I think. Oh my god, he's he great. uh yeah. commits very vaguely implied favors here and there to acquire himself a puzzle box called the Lament Configuration. And uh because he's he's so hedonistic, he's done pretty much everything, and he's bored with all the pleasures of the earth. Fun fact, when you solve this puzzle box, it opens up a portal to a dimension full of beings called Cenobites, led by the wonderfully charismatic Pinhead. They're basically... How to to describe them? If you don't already know. They're they're S&M demons. And and it's a little bit vague, too. They're they're, they're basically like hell priests (laughs) and stuff, but they're not traditional demons either. Because they're not fallen angels, they they all were human, and they basically became these leather-clad, pierced, demented figures because of their own hedonistic drives compelling them. And then when you solve the puzzle box, they uh, unleash you to an unimaginable dimension of pleasure and pain. I love this film, um, because it's so imaginative, first of all. They're so iconic. Pinhead's wonderful all the cenobites are so distinct and unique and powerful and uh the reason why i picked it though specifically is not just because it's another instance of barker making a very sexual film that's also not a sexual film it's so normalized (laughs) and interesting and innovative but then also uh specifically i thought it was important to highlight a film that is very pro kink okay so in the conceptualization of the cenobites he was literally inspired by an snm club and that influenced literally the concept of the cenobites and their physical design 
And I think it's important to acknowledge that as part of the large sphere that is is being queer because it's still controversial and people still tiptoe around that as a part of of human practice and desire and life even with like the contemporary like some cities having pride parades that are like yeah maybe you don't march with us if you like leather oh yeah yeah but no there's such an important part though like if you excise that then you have to excise so many other groups within that too yes exactly that's one of the reasons why it's so important for me to bring this film specifically because the fact that it is um I mean, yeah, like the Cenobites are treated as kind of the antagonists, but they're not villains in terms of the story world, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like the traditional personification of Satan and demons where they're like, no, we're just doing bad shit because we don't like God and we don't like humans. It's uh, they serve a function in reality. They're usually called what you literally ask for it. You know what I mean? And so it's, it's they're not predators they have a function uh, in reality. So it's not demonized per se, despite them being kind of hell priests. Demons to some angels to others, right? Isn't that the quote? Exactly. Yeah, yeah yep. literally. Yeah. That's literally yeah. a quote. And so I, I like that it's a, it's a film that kind of, you know, it, it, it does show the extremity of kink, I guess, in a, in a hypothetical, <laughs> high, like massively highlighted horror movie way. But it also does a good job in actually like exhibiting and being derived from practices that are important in queer and, and non-queer communities and that are often not shown on film in a light that's not purely othering. And I think that's fucking legit. Oh, yeah. His yeah. films are always so sexually liberated because this is also a film where you watch a woman get what she wants sexually. Like it's you watch Julia mm-hmm. get her pleasure. It's what I said earlier with the the cameras on Frank and it's Julia, you know, is actually enjoying herself. We're usually in those scenes. It's for the male, you know, or, you know, the typical straight male, I should say. Um, I just like I love Hellraiser for just putting it all out there. Like, just here you go. Here, here's your lifetime television for women, <laughs> typical family drama about a cheating wife. And let's just let's just yeah. add the kink and, and then let's out kink the kink. And... I totally didn't realize it had like a lifetime structure until just now. <laughs> <laughs> that totally amazing. does. It is a it's a family drama. It's a soap opera with, you know, a sadomasochist from beyond the grave. <laughs> it is, though. And the funny thing is about the film is that like like Frank, for example, isn't treated like a villain because <laughs> he's a hedonist. He's treated like a villain because he's an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I, I think that it's just an interesting and um, it sparked a whole series of films of variable quality. Very variable. <laughs> but um, the, they go to space. Oh god! It's yeah. That's a thing. It's the pinnacle of all. For, it's where you hope to go is space, but right? Really? You know what? The, the later films, though, I think it's just getting really <laughs> meta because it causes you an unimaginable world of suffering. <laughs> <laughs> We we open a box exactly. to take out the DVD. Yeah, I saw yeah, this DVD case shit. box, and oh my I god, mean, no! Um, Jesus <laughs> wept. But do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, greatest line ever. Um, 
we're nerds. We are nerds. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, I, I just had to, to rep a film that mm-hmm. both derives from, from Barker, who's a legend, but also that literally centers kink and doesn't shy away from it or the range of the spectrum thereof. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah. and does so in such like an interesting nuanced, uh, you know, literally creating a folklore way. If you really want to get into Barker, just dive headfirst into Hellraiser oh, yeah. and you got yep. it. But the second you see her, how do I put this up? Uh, tracing her throat vagina pleasurably, <laughs> the female Cenobite. <laughs> that's, what, that's all you got to know, man. Uh, Angelina, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, like that's that's Clive Barker. <laughs> it is. As ridiculous as those sequels get and, you know, as far as they get from the original real image or, or idea that Barker was going for. And this is kind of an admirable trait for uh, a giant franchise like this. They never once turned that um, kink BDSM imagery back onto itself for mm-hmm. laughs. It's always this thing that everyone accepts. And as bad as some of those uh, sequels are, they, they never resort to that, which yeah, is a absolutely. great thing. Uh, and you get to see Henry Cavill get slapped up on a meat hook. True story. Oh, you mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Hell world, baby. <laughs> oh, you know what? Man. Evil goes online. <laughs> my favorite one. <laughs> Thank you for that reference. And also, that is one way to defeat Superman. Yeah. <laughs> just get Doug Bradley on the phone. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I really f- just fucking love those movies. I really genuinely do. Like, yeah, you know, I have to say, I think I, I think I like the sequel more than the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hellbound's great. It's great. Yeah, I feel like it's the perfect movie. I kind of agree with you. Like, dude, uh, mm-hmm. I saw that at just the... It was the first probably truly extreme film I saw because I saw that before Hellraiser. So I think Hellraiser on a technical level is the better film, but Hellbound is... Like, I would even say that like the first three, like the, the, the first two I would say are the best two, but the first three as a yes. whole, like that trilogy are all very, very good. I, I think you meant to call it a trilogy, Jeff. Yeah, for... <laughs> For different reasons. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you for that humble correction. One is such a great contained, um, fucked mm-hmm. up masterpiece. Two opens yep. the floodgates to like you know you, you see hell royalty. Yes. You see like these giant machinations of things. It's the mythos. Yeah, building. you can't even comprehend. It's very Lovecraftian. The second one. Yes. Uh, the third yes. one is just like it's sort of like if you took the idea of Dawn of the Dead when hell is full that whole thing but it sort of just gets unleashed Every, everything just sort of takes over the real world yeah mm-hmm. it, it's like it, it's a perfect I... trilogy in terms of not one upping itself but making the stakes mm-hmm. higher and higher but doing yeah. something different yep. with it each time Yep, and it, and it really develops the mythology of the Cenobites and of yeah. Leviathan and of like just that whole world. And I feel like I'd still watch the, the sequels beyond that yeah. personally, because even if they vary in quality, it's better to have more I, pinhead than mm-hmm. not. I love four. Yeah. Like four's, unabashedly. Four's fun. I absolutely love when a series is just, because three kind of starts it. And I'm my ang- I get angry at three because you give me a CD Cenobite, but you're not going to go. Hey, I love that guy. You're not, <laughs> you're not going to go further than that. And then four's just like pure <laughs> schlock. 
And they're like, yeah. we're going to build a giant space trap for Cenobites. Four, okay, so four <laughs> goes along with my general life philosophy, which is that the best life decisions are made preceded by the phrase, fuck it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they make three and they're just yeah. like, we need a fourth yeah. one. Mm, yeah. Roll up the sleeves. Uh, fuck it. <laughs> no, I genuinely adore and just I, I love Bloodline on about the same level that I do uh, for Halloween 6. But I, I love bloodline a little bit more because i mean it has it has adam oh, scott with long hair and he, he does hair flips <laughs> he's so great okay hair hair flip adam scott <laughs> is our new logo <laughs> but in defense of halloween six in defense of halloween six halloween six has paul rudd and magic acorns so. Yeah, Halloween Six has Paul doing this really <laughs> weird dialect, and um, <laughs> How Razor Bloodlines has Adam Scott just not really doing a character. Really, he's just overacting Adam Scott, but with longer hair. <laughs> and like in the background, you just kind of see him having some like some cheeky sex with Angelique. I can, that's the only type of sex I can imagine him ha- him having. <laughs> it's cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> Cheeky sex. <laughs> he kind of, if I remember, he's dressed kind of like one of the the New Revolution. I kept waiting for like you know Prince to pop out. Yeah, it's like the French Revolution. No, like like Prince in the New Revolution. Like oh, it's, it's the total Purple Rain era. He's got the frills. Yes. Yeah, or like just give him a line like. I feel like this is going to be fashionable in another couple thousand well, years. What do you think? <laughs> Only a prince could wear these threads. That should have been the tagline. <laughs> right. The 1980s yeah. will happen. I mean, Adam Scott. Oh, we need to redo it now. I'm changing my name to Alan Smithy. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> I I love it. Well, n- now that we've fixed Hellraiser, you're welcome. Hellraiser. <laughs> No, so I just, uh, and eventually we're going to do almost certainly in a Hellraiser episode, but uh, there's just so much about the world building and the mythos and the, 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 Hell yeah. the folklore of the first three. And I also think that like from a cultural level, they're very important works of queer cinema. And I'm happy to be able to bring them to you all and rep them once again. 100%. And I believe that wraps up this episode. This is... I mean, but this is fun because this is exactly what we're, we're, it's, this is a fucking celebration, right? Yep, it's a celebration exactly. of a bunch of great fucking artists, a bunch of great films and things that excite us and, and weird tangents we go on because we've been recording for almost four hours. Yep, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's important just to say that like, and the whole point of this episode is just to celebrate, you know, films that have meant something to us and filmmakers that are amazing and deserve celebrated. And to say that like, you know, no matter who you are or what your background is like you fucking matter and you're amazing and you're part of the family and let's just celebrate the fuck out of you and you're needed exactly yeah we fucking fucking need you exactly so stick around every single one of you and we fucking love you that wraps up our episodes have a happy pride month and just continue to to stick with us uh and uh, see what great things we have in store Once more, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode and to all of you out there listening. From the dawn of record human civilization, we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous. They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares. They've been our protectors and our villains. They've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. 
Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization. The need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive. (laughs) 